Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Thank you so much for meeting with me, Mr. Kelmacher. It's it's not often that a studio head... I'm going to stop you right there, Bugface. The only reason I'm meeting with you is that the movie business is going nuts. Netflix, Amazon, Voodoo, Hulu, Choo Choo, Moo Moo. I might have made some of those up. The point is, we need content the way a cutworm needs a cabbage. That's why I'm willing to talk to a little parakeet like you. Do you follow me, you stack of bad cheese? Not really, sir, but I, I have a great idea for a movie. Pitch me. You've got 35 seconds. After that, you're a pail of beef sitting in the sun. Go. This spoiled heiress, Karen, has eloped with a pilot and fortune hunter named Duke over the protests of her tycoon father, and, and she sneaks off her father's yacht to go marry Duke, but on a bus to New York, she meets a reporter who... I'm going to stop you right there, Bean Brain. Here's the thing. We make all our money in two places, the Chinese market and popcorn chemicals. I own a diacetyl plant. It causes lung disease and dementia. You think I'm not gnawed by guilt? I never really thought about it. Well, I do. Listen, Bonzo, if I'm going to put people in an early grave, I want box office mojo. In the Asian markets, they don't like ghosts or flashbacks. In fact, I'm not sure what they do like, but it ain't people named Karen and Duke. But she falls in love with the reporter, and they have adventures. Adventures? Now you're speaking my language, you tub of trombone spit. Let's tweak your story a little. Karen is queen of the planet of the Sleet Wolves, but her homeworld is dying. She creates a portal, but her father had pledged her to the troll chieftain Clanghammer. But she meets, uh, what did you say her reporter's name was? Peter. No. Sir Lothar Handpeople, the demon lord of Toadhassen. But my story is about real people loving and laughing and learning what life is all about. And before you know, they'll be seeing ghosts and having flashbacks, and I'll be selling zero tickets in Beijing. I'll be honest with you, Pork Belly, I have no idea what life is all about. But whatever it is, it has no place in a multiplex. How about if I agree to base all my characters on a mindless smartphone game? Now we're talking. Let's have lunch. But not before America's greatest living film critic talks about Wiener and the Lobster, the best food schmooze ever. And now, the director of Kickboxing, Pride and Prejudice, Colin McEnroe. It was all just to get uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme that role as Mr. Collins, which he had begged me for. So uh, we are going to uh, talk about movies today with David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic. He writes for the New York for New York Magazine and reviews movies for NPR's Fresh Air and CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, but the first for the first segment, David and I want to talk about the documentary Wiener. And I thought it would be uh, good to introduce into that uh, somebody who actually has some experience in the world of not Wiener, but uh, managing uh, political campaigns and managing crises. Roy Ochiogrosso Roy is one of the guys you call when you're having Wiener problems. Not those kinds of Wiener problems. The Wiener problems you have if your name is Wiener and your political campaign can, is can imploded. A, a pun. Colin, can I just interrupt? Can this be a pun-free <laughs> zone? Please, please, interrupt. There, you please just, do interrupt him. Yeah, you just can't. There's the problem is you can't talk about this. It's without, true, you're just, you're right. it just It's a minefield. Anyway, so Roy's here. Uh, I made Roy go watch this movie. David and I have both watched this movie. Um, uh, David, I'm going to start with you. First of all, I just want to say, I, I'm, I feel as though there aren't very many good movies about politics anymore, and certainly not very good scripted movies about politics. I thought this was the best political movie I had seen in I don't know how long. I, I think it might be better in certain ways than the, um, uh, you know, than the War Room because uh, <laughs> because it takes you to a place beyond where the War Room took you. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even. It transcends politics. It's a movie about. 
It's a movie about social media. It's a movie about shaming. It's a movie about a kind of personality that can't quit. That 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 feels as if there is there is no difference. As he says in the movie, there's no difference between sort of curling up and and ceasing to exist and throwing yourself out there, no matter how much shame accompanies that or, or embarrassment is supposed to accompany that. Let me let me just say I squirmed. I don't know about you, but I squirmed and cringed all the way through this movie. It's I, I, I felt it was it was doing something awful to me as I was watching it. I felt titillated and I felt guilty for being titillated and I felt better him than me. And in a peculiar way, I also thought, gee, I like this guy's politics in spite of everything. You, do you know what I mean? Well, I know what you it's mean. A, you, can't, you can't have one single emotion when you watch this movie. Well, actually, let's hear a little audio from this, and then I want to uh, get Roy into this conversation. Uh, here's a little clip from Wiener. I just want to look at the questions and talk to you about how you want to answer those. So the answer to were pre-building campaign other than Huma aware? Okay. No. Then had there been multiple online exchanges with multiple people, or was it just this one? Can I just say multiple people, or is it just this one? I think you've got to, I mean, there was more than one, so I think, I think we've got to answer the question. Okay. Problem was that the, the series of interviews that I did when I got in the race were after this. And people asked me, is the number still the same? I think I said to six to Dominic, and then I cleaned it up in subsequent interviews because I knew that was a problem. Well, it's kind of hard to hear them. They're rumbling along in a town car, uh, and uh, his, one of his handlers is trying to talk to him about all the trouble that they're in. So, Roy Grosso, there's so many things to ask about and to t- talk about, but I don't know if you had the same reaction, but I was watching this film with a uh, one of your former, anyway, fellow political professionals whom you know very well, and who on a couple of occasions said, you know, in a weird way, if you take all the uh, the sexting part out of it, he's really a great candidate. I mean, there's a scene where he walks into a room in City Island, which is a hostile place to him anyway. He's at the height of scandal number two. Everybody there hates him. There's a campaign plant, it looks like, from, from, from another campaign there to challenge him. And he kind of turns the room around. I mean, what's weird about this guy, Anthony Weiner, is he has some serious skills. Very talented politician, no question about it. When I I had some of the same emotions that that David talked about a few minutes ago when I watched it. Mostly, what I felt though was angry um, on behalf of the people on the campaign, mm-hmm. working on campaigns. I have, I have worked on more campaigns than I can remember. It's hard. You don't make a lot of money. The hours are really long, and when the candidate turns out to be a schmuck, it definitely does not help. <laughs> and you know, there was that one scene where the press secretary was almost in tears because she had been accosted by the press corps. And that this happened in New York City, of course, only elevates it. Um, so I felt, I felt badly on behalf of the people on the campaign. And then, of course, without sounding patronizing or, or condescending, how can you not feel badly for his wife, mm-hmm. who, who sits through all this and, and manages to keep composed and to keep a level head? I, just, I, I thought it was an extraordinary movie. Um, a behind-the-scenes look in a way that you usually don't get. Well, no, David Edelstein, this uh, movie begins kind of on two premises. And we should say that the people who made the movie, at least one of them, maybe two of them, had some previous connection uh, as staffers, I think. To one, of them, one, one of them worked for, worked for Wiener previously as a congressman. 
I think I just want to backtrack and say what the movie actually is about. They signed on, the documentary filmmaker signed on to cover his comeback campaign for New York City mayor. And um, and the amazing thing is, in spite of all the jokes, in spite of all the punning New York Post covers, the first part of the campaign, the polls showed him ahead. Mm. Bill de Blasio, who was his nearest rival ideologically, was actually at the bottom of the polling. Wiener was on top. And it was only when the second texting scandal broke, which was really a sort of extension of the first one, that his that this horrible freefall began. That and it, at, as Roy said, it rocked his entire campaign staff. It rocked them. They had no idea this was coming. This was the iceberg that hits the Titanic. So, um, Roy, uh, a, a politician for whom you once worked, Bill Curry, uh, memorably said to me one time, almost everybody who goes into politics has some kind of yawning psychic deficit that they're trying to address. And he said, and the bitter irony of politics is it's the worst place to go and try it uh, and, and uh, fulfill your, your uh, fill the hole in you that has been created by some previous psychic trauma. And we kind of see this here that there, there's two incredibly or two incredible concepts behind this movie. One of them is that Anthony Weiner can rebound that the best place for him to to recover everything that he lost in the first scandal is by running for mayor of New York. A situation in which he's going to be fly-specked and torn apart and attacked and punned about by the Washington Post, that this is the best possible thing he can do to get back on the solid ground that was taken away from him. And that the other really great thing that he can do to rehabilitate himself is to let a documentary film crew be in his presence all the time. I mean, just standing back from this, first of all, as a campaign manager, what would be your reaction to those two ideas? Um, I think they're both right. I think the reason, if I had to guess, I mean, there's all sorts of, of psychologists and couches to try to figure this out, I'm sure, at some level. Um, (laughs) But if I had to guess, it's probably because Anthony thought that would be the best way for him to be able to tell the story on his own terms. In the first year of the Malloy administration, uh, Ted Mann, who was then at Hearst Papers, who's now at the Wall Street Journal, asked if he could embed himself with the administration for about nine months. And, And we had a conversation about it, and we batted it around, and we decided to do it in part for that very reason, because we thought that Dan Malloy had a really interesting, strong story to tell. And with all the noise and social media and, and modern communications being what it is, that's probably the best way for you to be able to tell your story most directly. Um, thankfully, nothing really bad happened to us, certainly not the way it happened to Anthony. But if I had to guess, I think that's probably what he was after. Um, you know, David, it does seem you alluded to this already, but I feel as though you know, Huma Abedin is almost as big a star of this movie as Anthony Weiner. And first of all, as so many people have already pointed out, she's so stunning that she's almost kind of a distraction. You can't look at anything else in any frame that she's in. But she's also a distraction in the sense that, I mean, after a while, the really peculiar mental mechanics of Anthony Weiner, you can sort of begin to understand kind of what makes him tick, what makes him run. She remains incredibly mysterious. I mean, she holds back so much from us, except with the occasional sad shake of her head or lowering of her eyes. He is a public man, and she is the opposite of a public person. And everybody will read into this why uh, she has been adopted as a, as a surrogate daughter quite explicitly by Hillary Clinton. From Clinton, she maybe they had a like temperament, but, but she's also learned how to play her cards close to the vest. And 
I mean, the sad thing about Hillary Clinton, I'm sure Roy would speak more eloquently to this, but to me, the sad thing about Hillary Clinton as a candidate is that everyone says in private who, who has spent any time with her, she's funny, she's profane, she's off the cuff, she's a hoot. Um, that's not the, the sort of buttoned-up person that we see in public. I, I don't know what Huma would be, Huma Abedin would be like in public. We see her make a, a short speech to the, um, to the crew um, of the campaign here, and she's extremely charismatic and mm. extremely eloquent, and she has the ability, I think, to say really very little except for, for the usual cliches, but to seem extremely earnest doing it. Maybe she's better than, than Hillary Clinton in that regard. But yes, the weight of the movie, it shifts to her, but she's also an enigma. I mean, she's, you have one guy who's saying too much and doing too much, and, and another person who is, who is kind of locked up tight with her arms folded across her, her chest, kind of rolling her eyes a lot of the time. Occasionally, the, the eyes get moist, but, but uh, it's very hard to read her. Yeah, you know, I want to just quickly yeah, follow up on, on yeah. a couple of things that David, he made a couple of very interesting points. Um, number one, she does seem somewhat mysterious and private and quiet, and that's probably exactly why Hillary likes her and trusts <laughs> her, um, because she is not a public person. Um, to the point about uh, the difference between the private Hillary Clinton and the public Hillary Clinton, I have um, been in her presence a few times in, in private settings, and she is all of those things that David said, and warm and funny. But she seems to suffer from the same problem that Al Gore suffered from for so many years, the, the inability to take who you really are, which is good, and to put that on public display in a way that you're comfortable, which to the point you made earlier about Anthony, which is exactly what Anthony was able to do mm-hmm. and is able to do, which is what made him such a strong candidate. You know, Roy, I also just want to ask you, one of the questions that I wound up having, obviously they had an agenda in agreeing to do this documentary, and they probably set it up under the most favorable circumstances with a former chief of staff uh, involved in it. And I found myself wondering, well, actually, I will once again quote the political professional whom you know quite well, uh, who said at one, there's one point where, one or more points where Anthony Weiner is talking to his staff, and he goes, he'll say something like, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but blah, 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 blah. And uh, the political professional in question said, I can guarantee you that's the first time the staff has ever heard that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean <laughs> to be rude. That, that you know, we know that he's a screamer on the floor of the House. He was a noted screamer. Uh, we see clips of this in, in, this, uh, in the documentary. But one senses he really is probably putting a pretty good show on as opposed to how he's really acting towards the staff most of the time. Yeah, the word... Um, on the street about him in political circles has always been that he is uh, difficult to work for. Um, But you know what? People who sign up to work for somebody like that, it's not like they don't know that going in. Um, And I think that's, that's that's part of the bargain. Back to feeling sort of badly for people on the campaign, um, you know, campaigns are really hard. They're made harder when you get yelled at and harder still when your personal life and personal problems explode online. Um, in the middle of a campaign. You know, David, this is, uh, given the title and the subject matter, really kind of less about the, the sexting of one's uh, private parts than one might guess. This is about so many other things, as you've both said and written. And to me, having just come off the uh, seven and a half or eight hour five part OJ documentary and going right into this particular documentary, first of all, I thought, 
<laughs> I'm just drinking from the fire hose of American narcissism here. You know, and, and there is there is some commonality, this sense with Wiener that he's looking for something that, that life can never give him, right? This the Bill Curry's right about the psychological deficit, that there's there's some water fountain that he's trying to drink at that will never quench his thirst. And that's why he's willing to put himself in these situations. He won't. What's interesting, though, is that is that one of the things in the movie, one of the motifs in the movie are people asking him, why? Why did you do this? Why? What's wrong with you, man? And he that's the one thing he won't do. He won't kind of plumb his own psyche in public. So so it's a question that sort of looms large. When is he going to break down? And I mean, he admits many times he has done wrong. But he says, I've already said it. I've already admitted it. He doesn't he's not willing to go to go that far. I think what he's hoping for in, in my review, I mentioned um, Mike Birbiglia's uh, film Sleepwalk With Me. Mm. He has a great line in which he's just done something really, really horrible and stupid and inconsiderate. And he turns to the camera because he wrote the script and he's directing it. And he says to the audience, remember, you're on my side. Mm. And, you know, there is a way in which Wiener really believes that he can charm the camera. In spite of all this, he can bring that camera into his inner world and he can he can work it in the same way that he's managed to to work the voting public and 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 charm us in spite of that. And, and put us on his side. And that is a very narcissistic impulse. That I mean, Berbiglia has a lot of insight into that impulse in himself. Clearly, on the basis of Wiener, Wiener doesn't. But if, but if that's not American, we all have our own cameras. We all have our own blogs. We all want to be the subject of our own documentary films. If that's not, if that's not where we are right now in this country, I, I don't know. And, I don't know what is. And, Roy, I have to think that, that that is an almost universal experience of working on campaigns, that that politicians tend to overestimate what they can do, uh, how well they can function, how well they can charm, uh, thinking that they can out-debate somebody who's actually a more skilled debater than they are. Yeah, and they it's the game, and they live for the game the way an athlete lives for the game. Um, one of the interesting things that struck me in the film was that the the point at which he looked the most sad was not when he was talking to his wife or acknowledging what had happened, none of those things. It was toward the end of the movie where he acknowledged in the car that this would this would be his last campaign. Mm-hmm. And he seemed genuinely, I mean, this has defined his life. He was uh, elected to the city council when he was a kid, a young congressman, thought to be the next mayor. And I think the realization that he would not be able to do this again was what made him the most sad, which I think speaks to a whole host of other issues. I, I actually, David, did you ever like him in, in the movie? Did you find yourself having any affection for him at all? Yo, it's hard to admit. <laughs> yeah, but yes, uh, yes, I did. Because I, uh, you know, when he talks about bullies, about all his life standing up to bullies. Now, he may himself be a bully in private with his campaign staff. But I do believe he was able to tap into that kind of primal anger that we all feel toward the landlord who, you know, who takes advantage of us or the the sort of the network of corruption that that, you know, has shut us out and has made our lives difficult. Um, I'm not saying sure that he taps into that in all his in all the political issues, but I, I really do feel as if. It, it wasn't just, you know, sometimes when you saw Bill Clinton, you didn't know what he stood for exactly. You just knew he was charming the heck out of you. Um, 
this guy, I feel like he really did identify with the underdog and and was, you know, and was and was using that. So, yeah, I, I liked that. I liked that. Um, I, just I wanna... also I also thought he was a great. I also looked at him as a comic character, yeah. too. I mean, as a comic character, he had stature. You know, he was there was so much self-deception there and so much deception and so much guilt, so much so much guilt and shame underneath the the apparent shamelessness so many psychological mechanisms so many little weird tripwires there he became a really fascinating comic character yeah i just first of all i want to say if you're worried about us spoiling this movie for you we couldn't do that if we wanted to you really there's so much in this movie that you just have to see and there are silences and things with body language and clips that are interspersed uh, as late night comedy uh, has fun with uh, with this guy and his problems uh, there's no way we could spoil this movie for you i, I will sort of you know, run the risk of spoiling one little scene because Roy, there was one point where I really liked him and it was because he was genuinely funny. Uh, and it's, it's, it's in one of the absolute worst possible moments. Everything has just gone to hell and he's in the car with, uh, maybe an aide or something. Hmm? His press secretary. His press secretary. And, and, but the filmmaker asked him a question. A question. I think it's something like, you don't really talk about your feelings or you really can't really talk about your feelings or something like that. And, and Wiener, without really looking at him, goes, you know, there must be some kind of fly that can talk, right? Some species of fly that speaks. Because I always thought a fly on the wall, the whole idea was that you really didn't make any noise. But I can hear this fly talking right now. <laughs> and I just doubled over in my seat. I was it, The delivery is very funny. And just I, I suddenly realized behind all of this stuff, as David's suggesting, there is a guy probably who, you know, who can uh, he has no perspective on himself or the trouble that he's in, but there's some kind of little comic spirit in there somewhere. Yeah, and if you think about the way this guy grew up, a skinny kid with a big nose, his last name is Wiener. I mean, there's just a whole host of issues that he carries into adulthood. Um, he's uh, he's known to be somebody who is genuinely funny. He's obviously very talented, but like all of us, he has flaws. His we're just on much more on public display than most people's. Um, and and so, David, I mean, I just I, I, I also wonder whether I don't know. I mean, if I were a politician, I would look at other people coming up to me with cameras, with documentary ideas, with great suspicion after this one. I mean, obviously, it's this is not going to happen again to somebody else. But it does seem like. I don't like, know about yeah. that. All right, go I ahead. I don't then. know about that yeah. because, you know, we this is no longer a private culture. Mm. There is something. Wiener is in the news again. Wiener is people are talking about him. People yeah. are going to this movie. We, we're we're devoting a significant amount of time to discussing the man. And it's no longer and, and as Donald Trump has shown us, you know, one scandal no longer is enough to if you if you have the right kind of shamelessness and the right kind of arrogance, you can you can, you know, put your foot in it again and again and again and brazen your way out of it. I'm I I think that there might be many people who said, "Okay, well, Wiener couldn't do it because of the sexting thing. Nobody could. But I could charm the heck out of this camera. You know, Mm -hmm. I could I could bring people into my inner world. I can play up to them. I can tell funny jokes. I can make fun of the interviewer. I can confess. I can do all these wonderful things. I can control the message and I can make people like me as a person. Now, I'm not saying Hillary Clinton would do that. Hillary Clinton is is the last person who I guess would want to do that, although maybe she should if Roy is correct. But um, there are a lot of people growing up right now for whom there is no such thing as a private sphere. 
I think David is exactly right on that last point. I think if you think about what it takes for someone to run for mayor or governor or president, it takes somebody with an enormous amount of confidence that you're the person who is best able to do the single toughest job in politics and government. Um, well, again, governor, president, or mayor. And if you have that level of confidence, then to David's point, you probably think you can do anything. You can charm people. You can get them to vote for you. You can talk to the undecided voter. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to have a camera inside a Trump campaign meeting as they are trying to talk him down from the ledge, any number of ledges, or review with him whatever asinine thing he happened to say that afternoon? I mean, I'd love that. That's one fly on the wall I would love to be. All right, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to stop there. Although I do want to say, okay, so it's playing at the multiplexes right now. If you can find it, but Wiener is about to go to Real Artways starting this Friday at seven fifteen up here in the Hartford area. Uh, it takes Saturday night off for reasons I don't know, and then starts back up Sunday through Thursday seven fifteen. That would be a great place to see this because when you walked out of the movie theater, there'd be other people with you uh, who were interesting to talk to about it. And usually at Real Artways, people, even people who don't know one another, fall into conversations there out in the lobby. So uh, go. Go see Wiener there or, or somewhere else, or you can get it on demand. But I, I think Real Art would be a, a fun place to, to go do this. Roy Okiogrosso, Managing Director at Global Strategy Group, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. All right, we'll have you back for the next political film uh, or a film of your choosing or a, maybe a movie about the Jets or something. There you go. Uh, all right, so uh, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We've got two more segments with David Edelstein. In the public eye. And let's face it, Mr. Wiener, this is the toughest case I've yet to face. Don't worry, Carlos Danger is no more. He's out the door. So here's our plan. Uh, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic uh, from Fresh Air, from CBS Sunday Morning, from New York Magazine. Uh, he's here with us in the studio in New York, actually. Uh, and so we're going to talk about one more movie, one more particular movie. And then in the final segment, uh, well, first of all, you could, uh, uh, you could tweet us at WNPR Colin or call us and tell us what you want to talk about. I have some ideas. He has some ideas. Uh, but uh, we'd love to hear from you, too, at WNPR Colin. Or you can call us, 860-275-7266. But, David, right now we're going to talk about The Lobster. I know you saw this a little while ago, as critics tend to do. You saw it before the rest of us started seeing it. Um, uh, I saw it last night. There was only one other person in the movie theater, and I was by myself. <laughs> and it was So it was kind of like The Lobster, which is very much a movie about loneliness and intimacy. Uh, our producer, Jonathan McBance, said it's like the Hunger Games for a lonely middle-aged people. Um, it, the premise is hard to explain, but I will try. Uh, it is. It takes place, I guess, in some abstracted dystopian future or something where, or maybe not, just in an abstract place where uh, uh, people who uh, are recently parted from their loved ones have to go to the this hotel. They have to find, they have to pair up with somebody else. If they don't, within 45 days, uh, they get turned into an animal. They can choose which animal uh, they get turned into. Uh, and they can extend the time before that deadline by hunting uh, other people who have chosen a life of total loneliness and, and aloneness. They are, and thus far, they, they are thus known as loners. Um, so let's, uh, before David and I uh, plunge in, here's uh, a little clip. I think this is uh, John C. Riley. And Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell is pretty much the star of this movie. And Ben Wishaw or Wyshaw. I don't know how to say it. I've seen him in everything, including The Crucible on Broadway. I don't know how to say his name. But anyway, the three of them are, uh, two of them are kind of familiarizing uh, Colin Farrell with his new whereabouts. Have you thought about what animals you want to be if you don't make it? A lobster. I'm going to be a parrot. 
if I don't make it. Why don't you become parrots too? And then we'll all be together. You're a complete idiot. Picking one of the few animals that can talk when you have a speech impediment. You'll lisp even as an animal. As for you, they'll catch you and put you in a pot of boiling water until you die. And then they'll crack open your claws with a tool, like pliers, and they'll suck out what little flesh you have with their mouths. You're pathetic, both of you. I'm not going to be turned into some animal. I'll come and visit you, though, with my partner, when we're walking together in some park or when we're swimming in the sea or when we're on one of our trips. So David Edelstein, uh, this uh, seems to be a movie that um, critics like a little bit better maybe than regular audiences uh, sometimes do. Um, how did you feel about it? I loved it, but I have many friends who are in the in the critical world who, who despised it, who thought it was <laughs> ugly and garish and uh, cynical to the point of, of no longer creating characters of, of stature, which I, I've used that word with regard to Wiener, but I, I do think... Even idiots in a film have to have stature. They have to be brilliant idiots or we're not going to care about them. Um, what's what's tough about this film, the director is Yorgos Lanthimos. He's a, he's a Greek director. And he does things – he does something that American filmmakers and many American writers don't do, which is allegory. Um, these are not – these these fables, these parables that he creates, are really not meant. They're they're so heightened, they're so absurd uh, that they're not really meant to be taken literally. They're meant to explore something that's in the air. Usually, uh, in the case of this director, some social pressure that is making people less than human. That is that is compromising their humanity. In this case, literally turning them into animals. And this is this is a, a lovelorn allegory. This is a man who th- this is a this is the story of people who cannot find love and as a consequence of various kinds of social pressures feel themselves transforming into beasts. Um, they are shunned, they are exiled, they are uh, you know it's really a, the the lament of a single lonely person or the fear that brings people together to marriage. Uh-oh, if I divorce, if I lose this person, I'm going to lose some aspect, my stature in society. I'm going to lose some aspect of my personhood. So we have Colin Farrell, who's playing it very schlubby and kind of amiable and schlubby. We're not used to He's a very gifted comedian. And uh, doing his best, you know, his best in his schlubby, passive way to find love. And, and you know, as, as a consequence of that, meeting up with a rebel group that is standing up with a, with a sort of psychotic, militant group that is standing up against this, um, this system and is going, you know, in the other direction, really. And finally ending up with um, this rather beautiful, uh, lovely, plaintive, nearsighted woman played by Rachel Weisz. And I won't give away the ending, but it's incredibly bleak and depressing <laughs> and sad in its, you know, in its, in its notion of, 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 you know, whether or not we're willing to stay with people who are, who are maimed, who are maimed in some way or another. 
Well, yes. And so I, I have to say, I, I like this movie, too. And I, I like seeing it in a movie theater because I think the visuals are a big part of it. I mean, if you're going to be able to work with this movie at all, you need to get, I think, sucked into it uh, visually. It is very much about the, the dilemmas of intimacy. Uh, and, and in fact, Colin Farrell, I, Colin Farrell is terrific in this movie, but he, he really is. He's, um, he's, a, he's a sensational actor. You know, he's he's another one of these people who Jude Law is another one. They became kind of leading men too quickly. They're character actors. They're really good when they're when they've got a lot of ticks and a lot of neuroses and a lot of a lot of odd oddball elements that that trying to sort of shoehorn them into heroic roles didn't didn't necessarily fit. Um, and, and, yeah, actually, I thought it wasn't even Colin Farrell's part a fault that uh, True Detective Part 2 wasn't any good. I th- actually thought he, he was even good in that. But I just want to say this movie, it, you know, so it explores in a very bleak uh, and unpromising way uh, the notion of intimacy. And at one point, Colin Farrell has to pretend to love somebody that he doesn't love. At another point, he has to pretend to not love somebody that he does love. And there's this constant sense also that you, it's almost a George Costanza view of in- intimacy, that you, you can't be with somebody who is, isn't equally Compared to you, you have to feel as though you know the person has no particular advantage or disadvantage uh, against you. And my only problem- isn't that a great idea for a self-help book? <laughs> George Costanza's <laughs> Guide to Love and Marriage. Yes, if you don't want to be happy or in love or married, yes, it's a great. <laughs> yeah. It would be a great book. So, but I guess my I came home and I saw it by myself and I came home and I said to my significant other. This guy is probably in his early 40s, this director. And there's something developmentally stuck about his vision, right? And I looked him up, and yes, um, uh, this guy, Lanthimos, is 42 years old. He's married, by the way, to the 32-year-old actress who plays the maid, the hotel maid in this movie. Um, But there's a sense in which, I don't know, you, you know, he's at a point where he doesn't necessarily see much more beyond you know, this very, very bleak landscape that he's painting. Or maybe he does, but this is just the art that he's chosen, the statement he wants to make right now. But I felt as though, wow, you know, give yourself another 20 years, maybe you'll be <laughs> feeling better about some of this stuff. Or, or you'll... I don't, I, it's where he lives, too. I, I mean, Greece is in a very perilous state right True. now. And in fact, we tend to think... We we tend to think of of Greece in I mean some of us do Gre- Greece is the birthplace of the classics and we tend to think of it like France and Spain and Italy and maybe maybe pl- places that have had terrible bloody chaos and fascism and and but but somehow remain great destinations for your honeymoon mm-hmm. um, great tourist destinations you know package tours um, it's this American you know we're very blinkered as Americans and we don't we don't really see the incredible violence and despair and cynicism that is under the surface of, of, of the Greek worldview and the, the sense that anything could go wrong at any minute and that any tie is fragile any idea of democracy is, I mean, democracy is a joke in his movies, um, in his other films. And uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that it's something one can necessarily grow out of. And it's not, I'm, I, I think we can look at it emotionally, but I think we also have to, uh, we also have to sort of put ourselves into the head of somebody who grew up in that kind of society. It's a great point, and it, it reminds me of the Chilean movie Gloria, where exactly, think, you know, like exactly, it, like if you if if you take the Chilean realities out of that, you know, and the post Pinochet realities out of that, you don't understand the movie. The movie is 
very much about sort of some of the silences people maintain because they can't talk about what they did during the previous regime. Exactly. And that's what Americans, I mean, actually, this film has found an audience. I don't know if it's found an audience at Real Artways. I, I wish it would. But it's it has found an audience because uh, in spite of the fact that a lot of people can't make that leap. Um, it, it's a very mysterious movie. If you don't, if you don't look at it sort of as an allegory in certain ways, and you don't think about, about these social pressures, um, I think it works just on an emotional level. I really do. But I also think it, it enhances your perspective to think about it in terms of another culture. Right. And what might happen in in this culture in a, uh, I mean, I hate that word dystopian. We've we've we're no longer living in we, utopia. No one thinks about utopia anymore. It's only dystopia in our future. And and it seems like every movie is a dystopia of one sort or another. But it is a kind of it is a you know the absurd extreme of what can happen in a society when when people aren't capable of intimacy and when they when they're getting together when when they feel this kind of enormous pressure to get together or lose their humanity yeah to the, couple up or lose their humanity the other work that lose it, their status well the other work that it weirdly resembles is Sondheim's into the woods i mean particularly i mean they literally are trying to either get out of the woods or get through the woods uh and and it asks some of the same questions about uh, intimacy hey david i wanted to do you may have a, a little uh, character actor shout out in there somewhere or a performance shout out this does have a lot of everybody's favorite actors right now including ben wishaw and and uh, john c riley uh, and um, Rachel Weisz, as you said, Lea Seydoux. I wanted to shout out Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman, who plays the manager of the hotel, uh, is a woman who I just had seen in The Night Manager, this uh, terrific Le Carre adaptation yeah, yeah. where she's kind of the, the the moral center of the whole thing and the uh, the one sort of trustable person in British intelligence. Um, and I, I'm now like, just I'm so ready to see her in things. And so I was so happy when she popped okay, up. Okay, I'm, I'm looking up the name of uh, a film all right there is there is a film if you want to see one of the great performances of the last uh i would say decade um it is a film called hang on i'm looking on my imdb here uh i can't i can't find it how do you like this okay it's with um it's with um peter mullen you know the the great irish actor peter mullen and oh tyrannosaur it's called Okay, Tyrannosaur is let me tell you why this movie was not a hit. Okay? This is let me tell you why this movie did not find an audience. I'm not spoiling anything. Here's the first scene. Peter Mullen is a raging alcoholic who gets tossed out of a bar and he is screaming at the people in the bar and his poor dog who is with him is yelping, seemingly trying to calm him down because the dog loves him so much. He gives the dog a swift kick. He kills his own dog in the first scene of this movie. Actually, he takes the dog home, and the dog is still alive, and he weeps over the dying dog, and the dog licks him. But then he buries his dog. So any movie in which somebody kills their own dog in the first scene, you know is not going to find an audience. But he ends up hiding out in a shop uh, owned by Olivia Coleman. And it is one of the great performances I, I've, I've, I think I've ever seen. It's a doomed love story, of course. He can't be saved. She, for reasons I won't reveal, is screwed up almost as much. Um, Tyrannosaur was made in, in 2011. Peter Mullen, Olivia Coleman, see it.
All right. Dogs don't do that well uh, in the lobster either. Um, no. or, or in margin call, right? Doesn't margin call begin with a, doesn't uh, Kevin uh, burying say, a dog? Burying, burying a dog, a dog yeah. yes. All right. Yes. Yeah. House of Cards also, I think you get it. So anyway, uh, poor dogs. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll have more of America's Greatest Living Film critic, David Edelstein. When you're trying to learn more about Wiener, Google is very unhelpful. Stay with us for the final segment with Colin and David. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Olivia Piper and Adriana Smith. The part of Phil Curry was played by Johnny Depp. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff dressed as Angry Birds characters, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Why You Underestimate Fish. And now, back to Colin. It's a long story. Uh, we're talking to David Edelstein right now. He is uh, America's Greatest Living Film Critic. He's with uh, New York Magazine, Fresh Air, CBS Sunday Morning. Um, so, uh, you know, I was thinking about this conversation, David, and I was thinking that we've actually already had a really terrible weekend and week here in America. And these seem like very tough times and very dark times and disturbing times. And I, th- I thought about what movies have done for us in the past. I mean, you think about the Depression, you know, and it's, it, it happened one night and my man Godfrey and, you know, and, and great sort of social justice movies like I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang and the Marx Brothers making us laugh. And then so I looked at, uh, and this is really going to depress you, uh, the top 10 box office movies right now, The Conjuring Part 2, Warcraft, and Now You See Me Part 2, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows, X-Men Apocalypse, Me Before You, we can come back to that one, The Angry Birds Movie, Alice Through the Looking Glass, Captain America Civil War, and The Jungle Book. So on on that list of 10, David, there's only really one movie that addresses human human issues at all. Uh, and it's a movie you didn't particularly like and probably has an audience for some from semi for semi different reasons. Oh, I think the X-Men movie uh, addresses more human issues than than me before <laughs> you does. The X-Men movie is about. Uh, let me just return, by the way, to to what you were saying before. It feels it feels odd to be kind of yucking it up on the radio after after what happened in Orlando and wanting to turn to to movies for some understanding and being completely you know blindsided by the fact that there's none there because in movies regardless of of you know whatever we think about gun control in movies we we worship guns in movies i worship guns in movies i read thrillers in which people execute people all the time and it and it gives me my jollies there is such a huge chasm or maybe not maybe some people that's that's why they're as popular as they are they're as fetishized as they are right now um at least the x men movie is about really has a very, very solid core of emotion, which is people who do not fit in. And you can label them as gay. You can label them as, as you know, minorities in one way or the other. They are, they are mutants. They are freaks. They, they cannot fit in. And they find some way of 
harnessing their power and harnessing their anger under under the protective umbrella of this man named Professor X, who is who is uh, who, the young one uh, played by James McAvoy finally goes bald in this movie, uh, though he shows no pattern male pattern baldness prior to this movie. He is a cue ball by the end of it. So um, I liked this movie a lot. A lot of people didn't. I, I thought it was emotionally very pure. Um, despite my reservations about the director, Brian Singer, there have been a lot of awful private, um, again, as with Woody Allen, as with Roman Polanski, as with so many other filmmakers, we, when we hear about their private lives, they dwarf anything that, uh, anything that poor Congressman Wiener, did, you know, did or, or will do. So I recommend that movie. Me Before You is just a very tepid, uh, tearjerker with, uh, I would I would say a, a career destroying performance by its leading lady, except that then she's so commanding and so wonderful in Game of Thrones. Amelia Clark under that wig and with her eyebrows in control, um, you know, cuts a very formidable figure, and, and a dragon behind her cuts a very formidable figure. She is a mass of ticks and and unholy ticks. Her eyebrows are doing calisthenics the whole movie. Her forehead is all squinched up. She's trying to be a British Sandra Bullock. She's trying to be the adorkable romantic heroine. She's trying to distinguish herself from from Daenerys. She, you know, she's trying to, uh, and it's just not working. It's just a terrible movie. It's also it's a movie that yeah it has a lot of people from other franchises somebody from the Hunger Games somebody, it's amazing somebody it's, somebody from it's Downton got Charles Abbey. Dance yeah. it's got Charles Dance from Game of Thrones yeah. it's got Finnick from the Hunger Games it's got uh, uh, I mean it's it's amazing it's got the guy from it's got Bates right. from Downton Abbey and it also was an incredibly popular I believe and I'll probably get in trouble for calling it this chiclet uh, novel uh, which had a huge following which has also helped it to the to, to get where it is in the box office but it does seem yes. just to go back to the original point. Yeah, you know, I feel as though at other in other times uh, of turmoil and stress, there, there's been kind of an undercurrent of hope. And you had people uh, just to go back to Capra in the 30s, making things like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You know, there's there are these movies that kind of connect us to our humanity and also show us possible ways out or ways of even maybe just dreaming our way out. And it does seem, you know, you said this in the previous segment about the lobster. We're, we're drowning in apop- apocalyptic visions. And if you're a young person going to the movie theaters these days, you know, the, 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 the biggest message would be work on your aim, you know, get really good at archery or something. The, the world is ending. If you want to survive, you know, learn to shoot something really accurately at somebody else. I hate to say it, but our, our popular culture, our pop culture is a lot closer to where Donald Trump is and the emotions that he's appealing to than it, than it is to the other side. It's not really a great mystery where some of these messages are coming from. Um, and, and I'm ashamed to say even, even movies that I, I like um, uh, have – I mean this is, this is how – this is the schism in, our, in, in many of our, um, our, our souls really between this sort of capital punishment loving, you know, kill the alien, uh, expel the alien – uh, exorcise the alien in the case of the conjuring uh, versus the sort of a- acceptance of of our differences and and um, uh, which I do believe that the x men f- films in their very imperfect cluttered uh, overblown way uh, touches on 
Um, okay, so let's not make the same mistake as Hollywood. We'll have to send people out on a note of hope. We're almost out of time. Uh, but either among the things that are out right now, I was astonished to see uh, David Edelstein give a basically positive review to a Greta Gerwig movie, Maggie's Plan. Uh, I don't think that, I, that's one. Yeah, I, that's that was a very, that. very mixed review, and she's <laughs> quite bad in it. She's She's gotten really insufferable, Greta Gerwig. Um, she's really bad in it. She's a, she's a massive tick. She's uh, almost as bad as Amelia Clark in that movie, and she doesn't have any Daenerys uh, to to balance it out. Okay, you know? we'll throw that one out. Uh, you've got uh, Love and Friendship. You've got uh, or, Love or, or and Friendship if, is a nice little movie. Yeah. Or if you want to mention something, I know you were talking about the Todd Salons movie that's coming up. Well, boy, talk about bad things happening to dogs. People are going to uh, send me death threats if, if they go see this movie. It is a. I don't. I've never been on Todd Solons' wavelength, and I don't think anybody in the world, apart from Todd Solons, is. But I am convinced that that he has a uh, a worldview like like no other. It's a, it's a mixture of it's just the most cruelly dashed hopes and, and a kind of cynicism, uh, a kind of nihilism, and yet I somehow feel this humanist urge in him somehow to connect with something essential in these people. Uh, I love this movie, Wiener Dog. But again, oh my God, that poor dog. So, <laughs> so maybe that so, wasn't the best one to send. No, that with. wasn't the best one. It's hard to, it's. Hard, I mean, love, love and friendship is a very small movie, but it's gorgeous. It's perfectly conceived and executed. It's based on a, a, a an unpublished in her lifetime book by Jane Austen and and a pistolary novel that that doesn't really work because I think she hates her her main character too much. Uh, Whit Stillman, who has made it, does not hate her. Uh, he gives her a lot of comic stature, and the cast is pretty great. And it's a very small movie, but but it's lovely, and it will certainly transport you to another world. What else is playing around there? I mean, I mean, I'm not going to send you to Warcraft or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I've I've done my best with the X Men. Um, no, the, the Jungle Book. You said that's still. I can't believe that's still hanging on. That's a lovely movie. Yeah. I mean, it. it uh, it's not Kipling, but it. Mm. But it's a lovely movie. I just saw Finding Dory, which opens on Friday. Um, it's not Finding Nemo, mm. to, to say the least. It's there's no reason that it was made under, other than they want to make a sequel, um, centering on a natural sidekick, Dory, and and it begins, I think, very very badly, and obviously, but. It turns into this wonderful farce. I mean, it's pure comic madness oh. happening in this sea, sea world-like enclosure. All right, we so have to. It we, yeah, really we, is a burst we, of good feeling. Okay, there's a good feeling that we can end on, even <laughs> if we had to force it out of ourselves. David Ilstein, great, great to talk to you. I'm going to go out and see X Men Apocalypse. You talked me into it, uh, and uh, thanks to everybody who worked on this show today, especially uh, Jonathan McPants, whose vision it was. We always do. Okay, some more ideas. Lizard of Oz. No. Bill Nye Little Pony. Uh-uh. Bill and Ted's Big Fat Greek Wedding. No thanks. Keeping up with the Kardashians, the movie. Sold. Ugh.